thanks for joining us at the Ham South Podcast Network. If you're interested in joining us in our services, we meet at 10am on a Sunday at 131 or Road in Melbourne. We'd love to see you there. Today's podcast is brought to you by the Neon Kids Program. Neon is a before and after school care and school holiday program for primary and intermediate students. Neon has two centres operating in Rotatuna and in Melville. For more information, visit www.neonkids.co.nz. That's www.neonkids.co.nz. Now to the pod. I mostly enjoyed um, preparing this. Sermons are hard work, I have to say, and I feel really rusty. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. John 17.3 Paul, in the epistle to Ephesians, is expounding the glory and the wonder of the eternal purpose of God and Christ for a unified family. Specifically, chapters 3, verses 14 to 21, which I'm preaching on today, is the closing prayers and doxology of the first half of Ephesians. Paul is praying the believers will know the divine enabling of God's Spirit in increasing measure that they will know God's reign or indwelling so that believers will experience Christ's love, so that they will trust and want to be transformed into a new humanity growing into the mature body of Christ, his church. You just want to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. There it is up there. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Yeah, I sound a little loud to myself. So who doesn't like a good story? Once upon a time in a distant land, or it was a dark and stormy night. Storytelling recounts events while describing the development of characters and circumstances. And God himself is the creator of the most wonderful of stories. He weaves his stories into our stories into his stories, each individual narrative revealing the truth of God's overall framing story. Each person gets to choose the play that you part that you play in your own personal response to God's loving invitations. We're just going to watch a PowerPoint when Ray gets it up. I'm making them jump hoops today. Sorry, Ray. And this is from the Bible Project. Tim Mackey um, does a great job explaining overarching stories better than me. And then after we've watched this, I'll um, wrap it all up in a sermon. And we've been talking about the spiritual beings, the Elohim, the divine council, angels and cherubim, the Satan and demons. And the last character we want to focus on is humanity. Now humans aren't spiritual beings. In Genesis 1 and 2, 
They're made of the dirt, like the animals. But notice that God calls humans to become something more. He elevates them to live and rule in Eden, the place where heaven and earth are one. And they're invited to eat from the tree of life. And what does that mean, to eat of the tree of life? Well, it's an image of receiving God's own eternal life into yourself. It's about a whole new kind of existence. So wait, physical beings living forever. How could that even work? Well, somehow, sharing in God's life transforms our bodies so that we can inhabit heaven and earth at the same time. And it also transforms our imaginations so that we learn how to rule the world like God in the power of love. This is an amazing calling, but humanity is quickly deceived by a spiritual rebel. Yes, he lies to the humans, saying that they can rule and get eternal life on their own terms. And God exiles all of them from the garden. They're cut off from the source of true life. Evil and death now have power over us, and we live in a world of fear, self-preservation, and violence. But God promises that one day a human will come to defeat evil and death at their source and to open up a new way to a reunited heaven and earth. And this promise reaches its fulfillment in Jesus. Right, when we're introduced to Jesus, he's a human, but he's also way more. Yeah, we're told that in Jesus, God and humanity have become one so that he can restore the rest of humanity to its lost calling. And Jesus was tested by that same deceptive spiritual being, not in a garden, but out in the wilderness. Yeah, it tells Jesus the same lie. You could rule the whole world right now if you come under my authority and do things my way. But Jesus knew that that lie leads to death. So he rejected it and was victorious over the spiritual power of evil. And so then Jesus started announcing that God's heavenly rule was arriving here on earth through him. And so he went around confronting the power of death in his healings and his exorcisms. Jesus was opening the way back to eternal life, to rule with God and become new humans. Yes, he also confronted our imaginations by teaching how corrupt spiritual powers enslave whole communities with their lies. Lies like, my tribe is superior to your tribe. But Jesus said every human is an image of God. Or the lie that power comes through force. While Jesus taught that real power requires sacrifice and generosity. Or the lie that peace comes through violence. While he said that true peace comes through self-giving love. This is a new kind of humanity. Yeah, a humanity transformed by God's life and his love. And Jesus didn't just talk about these ideals. He lived them out. Yeah, exactly. He brought God's heavenly kingdom to Jerusalem to confront the powers. In fact, that's what got him arrested. Well, so maybe the way of Jesus can't win over evil. But from Jesus' point of view, his coming death was actually a battle. A battle? Yeah, not against humans, but against the real enemy, the spiritual powers that enslave us through their lies. Jesus gave his life and let evil do its worst. But God's love has the power to create life, even out of death. That's what happened when Jesus rose from the dead. And the reason Jesus is human, but a new kind of human. Yeah, when Jesus' followers met him alive from the dead, he had a transformed body that could live in heaven and earth at the same time. He's like a new category of human, one that can live and rule with God forever. Jesus is the new humanity that we're called to become. Right. He said that all authority in heaven and earth belongs to him. And then he sent out his followers to announce that his eternal life is available to us now in the present. 
we can experience eternal life now? Well, Jesus said that eternal life is knowing this God of love so that our imaginations can be transformed as we're liberated to love God and to love our neighbor. And we trust that even if we die, God's love will transform our bodies and raise us up into the new creation. And that's how the story of the Bible ends. Yeah, the ending is a new beginning with Jesus and the new humanity ruling in a united heaven and earth together. And that's God's overarching story. So let's place this um, passage of scripture into the context. So firstly, let's explore the geographical location. The most important city in the Roman province of Asia, Ephesus was on the west coast of what is now Asiatic Turkey. Situated at the mouth of the Kesa River between the mountain ranges and the sea, it served as a landing point from Rome and a great export centre at the end of an Asiatic caravan route. The city, Ephesians, had been settled, conquered and augmented over a long period of time and was well known for its wealth of baths, theatre, library and paved streets. Ephesus was recognised as a major centre for worship of various pagan deities. The Temple of Artemis, ranked one of the seven wonders of the world, was located in the city. The temple had been the largest building in the Greek world, containing an image of the goddess, Artemis is also known as Diana, which it was claimed had fallen from heaven, perhaps as a meteorite. That's just a picture of the temple there. Um, silver coins marked with the image of Artemis had been, has, have actually been found all over many historic archaeological sites, adding validity to the claim that the goddess was re revered all over the known world and her coin was recognisable trade. At Ephesus, she was worshipped as the many-breasted virgin goddess that was fused with some kind of fertility cult of the mother goddess religion. It was believed that Artemis had the ability to control cosmic world fates and protect her worshippers. She was recognised as both compassionate and unpredictable. Therefore, she must, like many deities, she must be appeased. Ephesus was also important under Roman rule as the centre of emperor cult with three official temples fostering imperial worship. The earliest reference of the coming of Christianity to the city of Ephesus is Paul's first visit in Acts 18, approximately 52 AD. In Paul's third missionary journey to the strategic city of commerce, politics and religion, he stayed for over two years. You can read that in Acts 19. Although the church was established in Ephesus, it struggled with the common practice of blending beliefs, Judaism, goddess and emperor worship to Christianity. This is known as syncretism, where you blend lots of religions. Also, the practice of the magic cults was common, which meant the church faced in the city great spiritual opposition. In Revelation chapter 2, it informs us that false teachers and the practice of the Nicolaitans, which is thought to be a hierarchical system of leadership, threatened the Ephesian church. That's where the church was placed. So imagine not the church in Hamilton, but the church at Ephesus. Paul, who's the writer of Ephesians, was utterly captivated by the one true eternal God and the wonders of his story. God's purpose has always been a divinely united family, both in heaven and on earth. 
The family of God is to be a holy habitation, a mirror reflecting the self-giving community of love that we know as the Trinity. We are to be co-laborers of Christ in each of our appointed realms. In the previous chapter of Ephesians, Paul is explaining his own unique calling. I'm sure he's read Shannon's notes. His own calling of discipleship was for the Gentiles. And in this passage, Paul uses his um, Latin name, Paulus, which means little, to reveal that he has been divinely transformed to be a humble servant of God. Not the Pharisee of Pharisees of the tribe of Benjamin who went around breathing murderous threats against those that belonged to the people of the way. That was Paul in Acts, before his conversion. No, Paul, who's writing this epistle to the church of Asia Minor, specifically the church of Ephesus, has become the faith in Christ alone Paul, who is deeply aware of the mercy of God towards him. Paul had been granted the fellowship of sharing in Christ's suffering and fulfilling the discussion that Jesus had with Ananias in Acts chapter 9. Paul's own sufferings, as listed in 2 Corinthians 11, floggings, stonings, beatings, shipwreck, and the like, including the thorn in his flesh, enlarged Paul's understanding of God from an academic student of the Torah, which was required of him to become a Pharisee, to truly comprehending in his heart God's overarching plan and purposes, the outworking of the Spirit of God in the universal church, to the full and glorious conclusion, Paul had actually caught a vision for God's new humanity. In contrast, worldly history concentrates on battles and kingdoms and economic alliances to create peace treaties. Scripture records the war between the kingdom of God and the rebellions, both in heaven and on earth. With the victory won by Christ on the cross, a peace treaty ratified by his blood, the sovereign proclamation of an amnesty for all rebels who will repent and receive Christ's forgiveness, sharing in his merciful love, with all creation, that is the church's central mission. So let's talk about family likeness. Paul, in this passage, kneels before the father. In the, in the Greek, the, the father is called pater, and he links this with patria, the word for family, to define a family of descendancy or paternity. The creator God is reshaping his whole family back to his original attention. This also fits into an Old Testament understanding of naming where it is to call into existence and exercise dominion over those that are named. For example, in Isaiah, he who brings out the starry hosts one by one and calls them by name, he is the creator. So Paul is linking this kind of Old Testament understanding. He further connects this verse to the previous theme in chapter 2 that Jews and Gentiles are fellow members of the Father's family and as such enjoy equal access to the Father. There are no longer any man-made rules of who's in and who's out. Paul is expanding the understanding of family to include every believer in heaven and on earth belonging to the same family through Christ, one God and one Father of us all. Jacinda Ardern's They Are Us is a political expression of this concept of a united, diverse family of belonging. We're all hardwired for belonging. But this noble goal can only be brought about through the Spirit of God working in yielded lives. 
and much as possible. Look at the amazing work of Nelson Mandela and Desmond Tutu in bringing racial reconciliation to South Africa. Men of God who dreamed of far more than what they lived or experienced. Somehow they had too caught a vision. And men and women of faith always leave godly imprints throughout world history. However, racism still exists in the worldwide church and in the New Zealand church. And we cannot transform our society out there until we allow God to work in here. Paul is redirecting our internal values. James, in the church of his day, addressed favoritism this way. God has chosen those that are poor in the world to be rich in faith. Keep the royal law and love your neighbour as yourself. James chapter 2. This is the inner work of putting to death the old self and its biases to authentically love those that God calls into his multicultural family, every nation, every tribe, and every tongue. Authentic children adopted into this new family of God reflect the values of their father. It is inconceivable that we, calling ourselves Christians, should enjoy a relationship with God as his children without accepting and cultivating the responsibilities of our Father. Genesis, the beginning of his story, reveals our Creator inviting his creation to share in the same circle of love as the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Choosing to be transformed into this new humanity starts with a sincere, heartfelt repentance, death, always comes before resurrection. Remember Paul's suffering? This is God's cosmic plan of renewal, which is required to break through sin's hardening in our hearts. Through the Holy Spirit's conviction, repentance, each believer must contribute their time and consistent effort towards transformation of the inner self. This process is called sanctification. In verse 16, Paul adds to this his intercession for the ongoing process of maturity in Christ. He says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he, God, may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. Knowing that believers, we will fall short in our own efforts, he requests not further blessings, but rather that each of us as individuals may appreciate to the fullest extent the implications of what you have already received. Knowledge is indispensable to the growth of holiness, but not a Greek or a Western perception of knowledge, rather a Jewish concept of understanding, that what you know here is lived here and you get insights and understanding, you apply it. This is impossible without the revelation of the Holy Spirit. So you need a holistic understanding of knowledge, knowledge with the head and heart, combined with our loving faith in him, while still anchored in our humanity. We're not going to be less than people. We're not going to be less than human. Francis of Assisi says, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. This reveals how important it is to walk the talk. St. Ignatius of Loyola, a 15th century priest, has well-known teachings that seek to assist believers to integrate their inner experience of God to a practical outworking, enabling the Christian to see God in all things and develop a deeper awareness of him and a devotion to him. True spirituality is not an intellectual agreement to a code of morality. Too often the church has been in the business of sin management 
and denominational or tribal affiliation. Paul is praying for a dwelling of the Father, the Son and the Spirit for Christians to be totally rooted in a transformative love. The Christian faith life is fundamentally a love story. Paul's second intercessory prayer in this passage is for the church of Ephesus to know and have confidence in and deeply experience God's love, especially in the light of supernaturally powerful enemies that oppose it. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp, to know how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all fullness of God. The dimensional terminology, wide, long, high and deep, has a number of different interpretations. The four arms of the cross of Christ embrace the world and all its dimension, dimensions as one many of the early church fathers used to explain this verse. The Ephesian worldview included Artemis and the emperor as powers that controlled their environment and life. The new believers in the church of Ephesus had to move from a system of pagan worship to allegiance in Jesus. The cross and its all-encompassing victory had to be clearly understood. Paul prays that God himself will strengthen them to understand and grasp, together with all the believers everywhere, the magnitude of his incomparably great power and love. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, he says in Romans. As Western Christians, we do not have an intuitive awareness of the power of darkness. However, Paul's expounding doctrinal truth, and one I'm sure that the Ephesus church knew, people everywhere are dominated by the power of sin and the power of the evil one. To give oneself to Christ is to be rescued from these overwhelming influences of the world by the powerful redemptive hand in God. In and of ourselves, we remain weak and vulnerable. We need the ongoing indwelling of God to live as sons and daughters of God. Paul is reiterating this truth before he details the high moral code he expects the followers to embrace in chapter 4. Perfect love casts out fear. Obeying his commands allows us to, to abide in his love and divine love liberates us. A number of New Testament hymns or verses speak of Jesus Christ bringing glory to the Father, and the Son has and will continue to honour the Father. But this doxology, verses of praise and glorification, refers to the church's principal goal in bringing glory to the Father. This is the only doxology that says it's the church that brings Glory to him. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. Paul's concern is for the Christians at Ephesus to embody the truth in such a way as to be energised to faithfully live the reality of God's fullness as a witness to the world. 
These prayers come before his request for behaviour change. This approach is instructive. Any hope of change in attitude or behaviour has to be rooted in the conviction that God will supply the power to live out a new life in Christ. Often we reverse the order. We demand change from people before all else, and if that fails, then we pray. This mystery, a new creation in God, is so valued by God that he offered the blood of his Son to create it. The church is to maintain its vital unity with Christ, that we become like the Father in holiness. This definition refers to a set-apartness from the old world order, not perfection, that we may stand against the influence of the power of the supernatural enemies, filling the world with the good news of the Son, offering and bringing continual praise to the Father forever. Paul uses a very strong writing style to emphasise the expansiveness of Christ's kingdom. The original translation says, for all the generations of the ages and the ages. So how can we apply this teaching to us today in the church? I found this guy. I'm not even sure how to pronounce his name. Xenophon. He was an Athenian soldier, philosopher, and historical writer, and he wrote a book called Ephesicia around the time of Paul's ministry. His writing provides insights into the ancient worldview, and this book in particular gives us a window into what daily life in Ephesus was like, the cult of Artemis, the function of the temple, as well as the prevailing attitudes of wealth, women, slaves, and benefaction. I came across this because um, a friend sent me a link to a guy who was writing his dissertation, his doctoral dissertation, and he used this book as part of his thesis. <clears throat> Paul is instructing Timothy in 1 Timothy how to address the cultural issues manifesting in the church of Ephesus. For example, Ephesians woman, Ephesus, well, Ephesian women were expected to serve Artemis. It was a cultural expectation that every woman in that city served in the temple. In exchange for actively serving the goddess with piety, Artemis would protect them, especially in childbearing. This included how they had to have their hair styled and the clothes that they wore because they were to be imitators of the goddess while serving at the temple. The rich nobility of the, of the city owned the religious leadership roles for personal gain. Serving the cult was linked to wealth, status, and honour, and as a means of amassing even more wealth. So if you were wealthy and you wanted to get more wealth, you served at the temple. And of course, now Paul comes to the city and he starts preaching Christ crucified, and now we have believers forming a church here. Contrast that to the cultural practices against God's kingdom principles of the Father as the sole benefactor with equality for all believers in the family of God. There's to be no hierarchy in the church. Rather, believers are to serve humbly, becoming rich in good deeds. The teaching of 1 Timothy, the church of Ephesus, is targeted to the thinking and behaviour of the wealthy who sought to preserve their roles and their reputations. And they... So they took what they believed and they took it into the church. And if you want to, after church, read First Timothy, you'll find some of those things that Paul's addressing there. Ephesus was an important city religiously 
and, and for commerce, it was multi-ethnic and it had very specific cultural norms and expectations. New converts were claiming their positions of authority without allowing for the process of sanctification to rec recreate their inner selves, and they were therefore trying to shape the church around their cultural expectations. So what are the core values of New Zealand culture? This made me think. What are the standard roles for gender in New Zealand? How do you know you've made it if you're in New Zealand? Now compare that to the church. What does God expect of gender roles? What does God say is success and how we've made it? So let's just try an exercise. Can everyone stand up, please? I would sit down on this first one. So I want you, everyone who was not born in New Zealand to sit down. That would be me. I'm Australian. Okay, I want everyone to sit down who had one or two parents that were not born in New Zealand. Got some different cultures happening already in Ham South, haven't we? I want you to sit down if you were born in the South Island, because you guys have a different culture down there. <laughs> okay, these are the only people, I'm assuming, that were born in the North Island of New Zealand. Your culture is not my culture. What I think is normal as Australian is going to be completely different to you. So already in the city of Hamilton, not Ephesus, look at the different cultural practices we bring. Then if you add to it age and gender, now we've got different cultural expectations. You can all sit down now. This was definitely true at Ephesus, totally different. It was multi-ethnic and lots of people coming with different cultures and then religions. So to assume that we have the truth, our own personal values or worldview as being the only way of seeing any given issues blinds us to other possibilities of interpretation to God's truth. It is also unbiblical. Acts 17, now the Britians were of more noble character, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul was saying was true. That's a great heart attitude. How about we just all, like we do in this church, what are we hearing God saying through our own filters? And then thrash that out, you know. What is God saying to us? In conclusion, Paul is praying for believers to know his divine enabling, transforming their inner selves by degrees, discipleship. Christ's immense love that is to be experienced as incarnational or personally manifest in our lives, that collectively as his new family we may reflect God's love to one another, both to fellow believers and to the world, according to his power that is work for his glory. Daily spiritual practices, consistently practiced, have to be consistent, enable transformation of a worldly culture that we live in to become re-imaged into his kingdom, of kingdom family. Racism in Australia, I have to say as a personal comment, is huge. I joke about it with my kids, but I honestly think it took about 10 years for God to consistently work on my racism before I could be even mostly human about it. I grew up in Australia until I was 14. We are a very racist culture, and it has zero, zero, zero place in the kingdom of God. Companionship with fellow believers, 
that is intentional, not just rocking up in church and not talking to anyone. They have to be mutually respectful in such a way that the relationship allows vulnerability that creates space for our true selves to be seen and loved and sometimes corrected. But if there's no relationship, I don't really want your correction, but I do want to be corrected. So we need to create these amazingly trustworthy relationships. Then, when we've got sanctification or discipleship happening with fellow Christian relationships, then our internal compass is more likely to be pointing to the true source of life. Then it's easier for us to reach out and love others into the kingdom of God. Sometimes we do that intentionally. Sometimes we're just living life and people are watching how we do that. As um, Shannon said, it's the going, and as I'm going, making disciples, I don't have to be perfect and cannot be perfect until I do that. It is the love of God that captures our deepest selves for why we were all yet sinners, Christ died for us. I really enjoyed um, the study. Like I said, mostly it's quite hard work. The relevance of scripture is so important to today. And sometimes we just don't take the time. You know, you can read Ephesians and go, yeah, that's deep, Paul, awesome, rocking it out. But to really understand the culture that he was speaking into. So if you want to do some study, Acts 18 and 19, 1 Timothy and Revelation 2, as well as this passage in scripture, will really, you know, bring it home to you. This is the gospel with you know, flesh and blood getting thrashed out in a, in a city that was really spiritually dark. You know, it's the last place that I would want to set up a church with that much opposition. It was purely demonic. Um, and yet the gospel was planted there and watered there and grew there and went out from there. Strategically, it's a great city. It was an export centre. You know, people coming and going all the time. What a great way to spread the good news, but not an easy way to spread the good news. And they were not perfect Christians. They were bringing in, you know, their own practices. And yet Timothy and Paul were encouraging them to, you know, dig deep into God and to be transformed. But prayer was integral. And I think for me, a takeout learning for this was I do live in a Western culture and I forget how spiritual I need to be about being intentional about the word of God. Um, too often I'll, I'll confess I do it in my own strength instead of being prayerful about it. It's not that I don't pray, I pray every day, but sometimes I still even take my prayer for granted. God, transform me. <laughs> so if we all stand, we'll finish in prayer. I hope I've given you lots of things to think about. Um, let's just say the Lord's Prayer together, shall we? Our Father, who is in heaven, holy be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those that sin against us and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thanks again for joining us for this week's message. Before you go, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Neon Kids Program. Neon is a before and after school care and school holiday program for primary and intermediate students. Neon has two centres operating in Rotatuna and in Melville. For more information, visit www.neonkids.co.nz. That's www.neonkids.co.nz. Thanks again.